The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts 18, chapter 18, verses 24 through 19:7. If you're able, please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And if you're not able to stand, join us by lifting up your hearts. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus, the Christ, was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. How are we? It's good to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Jason Suddeth. I'm filling in for Bill today as he's out of town, um, and I'm just excited to be up here. Um, in general, I've got one word for you today, okay? It's an important English word. It's an underrated English word, and the word is proximity. So before we get started, my goal to you is to prove to you that this is an important word. So let's start off with who I'm, I know I have in the room. If you are a realtor, raise your hand. All right, now pull out a card so everyone can see. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Um, if you're a realtor, proximity is everything, correct? If you are in close proximity to the ocean down in Sea Pines, your house is worth a lot of money. If you are in not in close proximity and you're somewhere, sorry, Jasper County, somewhere deep, deep out in Jasper County, your home value changes a lot. Now, if the proximity of your house to the water changes slightly, say a hurricane comes in and all of a sudden the water is now in your basement, your values changed again. See, it's a question of proximity. Last night, um, or yesterday afternoon, it was just me and my five-year-old son home, and we were trying to burn off some old wood. So I started a fire in the backyard, and we talked a lot about proximity to fire. Too far away, you don't feel it, right? Too close, it burns you. And so he and I literally practiced. I don't know why I wanted to practice this. Like, how close can I get to the fire, Dad? Which there's a biblical illustration there somewhere for another time. But... We practiced, like, all right, this, this is where you can be with a fire. If your proximity is too close, you're in trouble. But when I think proximity, my mind goes back to the same story every time, and it involves Shamu. 
Anyone, as soon as I said Shamu, anyone know who Shamu is? And I can't say it right. Even when I wrote it down, it's like Shamu, Shamu. I can't, so I'm going to mess it up. So be emotionally ready for that. Shamu was this whale. It was a killer whale at SeaWorld back in the 80s, 90s. I'm trying to place my brain on, but the only time I've been in my entire life, Shamu was the big thing. You had to go see Shamu jump around the water. Uh, and so we get there, and I'm begging, begging my dad, like, we got to sit right here. He goes, oh, we're not sitting there, because that's the splash zone. Yeah, I wanted to sit right where when Shamu jumped up, hit the water, that mountain of water comes out and just doused me, because I was probably eight years old, and for some reason that sounded really fun to have nasty, disgusting whale water all over my body. My father, who was in Florida wearing jeans and a T-shirt in 86-degree weather, did not think walking around like that would be fun for the rest of the day. So we sat a little higher. I was a little upset. It's okay. I got over it. But I thought about proximity. Right there in the splash zone is one area. 15 feet up is a different area. 25 feet closer in the middle of the water is a very different area, isn't it? Proximity matters. So here's what we're going to do today. We are going to look at four different groups of people. And the question we're going to ask is, how did proximity to the gospel affect them? How did when the gospel came right by them, how did that affect their life? And what we're going to see is some of them responded one way and some of them responded the other way. We have some really positive stories. We have some really negative stories. And here's our big question that we're going to walk away with. Why, when four different groups get in close proximity to the Gospels, do we see totally different results? Does that make sense where we're going? Okay, so we're going to kind of just jump group to group to group to group as we follow the text. So if you have a Bible, go to Acts 18, verse 24. You just heard this. You heard us meet Apollos earlier. A little bit of background before we read. If you were here last week with Bill, we actually covered a really positive passage in a lot of ways, right? Paul had great ministry at Corinth. He met a Priscilla and Aquila. And during his time there, there was conflict. But in the end, instead of him being abused for preaching the gospel, those who opposed him were actually the ones who faced difficulty. So we kind of come in with a positive spirit, and we run into a guy who I think we're all going to be really impressed with. His name is Apollos. So let's look back at that. Acts 18, verse 24. I'm going to read a little bit of this again, even though you just heard it. Now, there's a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, who came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now, I'm going to take an intentional pause right there. We've learned a couple of things about him already. We've learned he was an eloquent man, and we're told he's competent in the scriptures. That Greek word there for competent is the same word they use for dynasty. So think of a team that just dominates, that everyone who gets in their way, they just absolutely own them on the court or on the field or on whatever playing surface they're on, and they come back the next year and they do it again. They come back the next year, they do it again. That was his knowledge of the Old Testament. He had, and I'll cut the book in half, this part of the Bible, just a deep, amazing knowledge of. And if you ask him, he had it. And he could put in, and he knew the prophecies and how they all worked together. And he obviously had a mind that could understand it, but then a tongue that could explain it. So you meet this guy, you're like, oh, he's impressive. But he's not just one of these guys, and we've all heard them before, who understands the Bible really well, and they talk like this, and it's a long time, and you're like, when is this? No. 
He also had an energy about him. If you notice, it says he was fervent in spirit. That word fervent literally means to boil. So if you've ever left a pot on the stove and you're boiling some water to make spaghetti, or if you're in my world right now, Kraft mac and cheese. Uh, oh, what is that stuff? Uh, but, and you, you walk out of the room, you get distracted, and you come back in, the water is literally just flying out of it because the heat is pushing it, I don't know science, uh, out of the bowl, and it's just coming out and coming out. That's how he was described in spirit. Not the Holy Spirit, but in his spirit. He just, he knows the Bible so well, but he can't help. It just flows out of him, and when it flows out of him, it flows out of him really well. And you're like, ooh, let's get this guy on our team. He's good. And we're told, if you notice that, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But then in your English Bible, there's a comma there. Because the next little phrase says, though he only knew the baptism of John. See, he didn't know the whole story. He had never heard the Jesus part before. He had, been, he had somehow sat under the teachings of John the Baptist or someone who was under the teachings of John the Baptist, and he had been told, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming. And he had repented and been baptized in the name of John, and he's sitting there eagerly awaiting for Jesus to come, but he doesn't know who Jesus is. So the best thing I can do to help you understand this is if you grew up in a time of the, the Star Wars movies, I, can, I was too young to see it, Live, but I still remember the first time I saw the second Star Wars movie. And there's that critical scene, right? Where Luke Skywalker is fighting Darth Vader and he's out there and you're like, Darth Vader is about to kill him. He's gonna, and he goes, Luke, I am, that's pretty, I'll say I'm getting deeper. Luke, I am your, that wasn't deep enough. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, Luke, I am your father. And you go, what? That's his father? How did he get evil? Why is he good? What's going on? Is he going to kill him? And all these questions start coming in your brain about like, oh, this changes the whole movie. But imagine you're in the theater and you've loved it. Oh, what a great movie. You've seen the first one. You're stoked for this one. And you go, Luke, I am your, and the screen just cuts off. And they're like, Sorry, maybe better luck tomorrow. And you go home and you start telling the story of the movie. You're like, I loved it. And this happened and this happened and this happened. And at the end, he goes, Luke, I am your, and we don't know what it is. That's Apollos. And then what you heard read is Priscilla and Aquila, who Paul had poured into before in Corinth, are now down here. And they're saying, oh, we get to tell you the end of the movie. Oh, and it's really good. There's this Jesus. And he was the son of God. And he was risen from the dead. And when he hears this, it explodes in him. And he became an absolute mighty weapon for the gospel. God took his God-given natural talent. God took his past and turned it into something that's going to do amazing things for God's glory. I hope everyone in the room understands this. That's your story. It's 100% your story. Maybe you sit there and you say, well, I'm not eloquent. Like, I try to talk about Jesus, and it's like, like, it just, I can't do it. Some of you are like, well, yeah, I've been trained in it, but this, and I, and I think very importantly, that conference next weekend, it's why we do conferences like that, right? Because some of you are like, that's so scary to me to take on those things, and to, how do I, what if they have a question I can't answer, and how do I put it all together in a, what's well, great. God is going to take your story and how he's made you, and the training, because Apollos had training too, and he's going to use all of that when the gospel gets involved in your life. So we meet Apollos, and the gospel radically changed him. Second group, all right? That was group one. We got four total. Here's group two. Group two, I'm going to call the disciples. We're going to put a couple of air quotes over the top of them because the scripture here is 
I'm not saying it's easy to misunderstand. It's a really controversial word choice, actually, in this passage. And it starts in Acts 19, verse 1. So look down to Acts 19 with me. Here's what it says. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And this is where I'm going to go, disciples. Um, And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard of that. There is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. So let's pause here for a second. We see a little bit of a similarity, see a little overlap here. This is that same group, and I'll tell you why I put quotations around calling them disciples. A lot of people said, well, these guys are clearly already Christians because it calls them disciples. So what happens next is going to have a lot of theological importance. So before we get to what happens next, I just do want to pause for a second and tell you why I don't think you're looking at disciples of Jesus. One, they call themselves disciples of John. They are baptized into John's name. John taught Jesus is, or the Savior is coming, the Messiah is coming, repent and watch. That's what they've been brought into. Now, why this is going to matter in a second is going to reveal itself, but I want you to see this. They are saved, they are disciples in the Old Testament sense. In the sense that everyone in the Old Testament was looking for the Messiah to come. They were placing their faith that the Messiah would come. And these have not heard of Jesus and have not been encountered Jesus either personally or through someone talking about him. And I'm going to show you why it matters in a minute. Look down to verse 4 and we'll see why it matters. And Paul said, John John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And now they've got this moment of response. The true gospel, the full gospel, is in close proximity to them. And verse 5 tells us, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were 12 men in all. Now, why I tell you this is important, because a lot of people will take this passage and say you should be waiting for some second coming of the Spirit. Yeah, you're a Christian. Yeah, you're saved, but you don't necessarily have the Spirit. You should be waiting for some moment in time where the Spirit comes and you go from being sort of a a Christian to a Christian. And what I can tell you with great clarity out of the Word of God is when you become a believer, you are instantly indwelled with the Spirit. And it is with you every fallen, broken step of your life. And it will call you to repentance when you need it, and it will remind you of hope when you need it, and it is there every moment in your life. And to put it in as simple a terms as I can, is there are no VIP Christians. Some of you look at Billy Graham or a pastor or someone else you know and go, wow, I mean, I know I'm a Christian and I know God loves me, but like that guy, that girl is different. The same spirit that literally and in body raised Christ Jesus from the dead is inside of you at this moment if your faith is in Christ. Do you believe it? Right now, if you had a terrible morning, if you 
messed it up last night. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you right now. 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you, the spirit who indwells you, than he who is in this world. That's your reality. And don't fall into this mental trap that these levels of this. We, my wife and I went to um, Dominican Republic for a vacation in December. It was absolutely amazing. I, I missed my kids for like seven minutes of it. Uh, <laughs> But I'm like a researcher, and I don't know if anyone in here, like, I researched like 10 trillion places, and I found this one place, and I was like, oh, that's a pretty good rate. Oh, this place looks really good. And I wanted it to be an all-inclusive, right? I mean, I've never done one of those. It was one of those things I was like, I don't want to have to, I just want to, like, if I want food, I want it to magically appear. And it was wonderful. And I ate a lot of food. Uh, but I saw a room, I was like, that's a great deal. And then I looked at the price, and there was one more expensive. I was like, well, that's oceanfront. Why would this be more expensive? It was in the, uh, what did they call it? the all-inclusive VIP area. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, ooh, maybe I'll get that one. And then I scrolled down, and there was another one that was even more expensive. And I was like, well, wait, why is this one more expensive? That one was in the club VIP area. And then I went down, and I said, wait, there's one that's more expensive than that? And that was in the platinum VIP area. And I thought, how much of an IP are you if there's four levels of IPs, like, above you? But, like, that's how so many of you view yourself as your faith. You view yourself as, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm at the resort. This is great. This is wonderful. But wow, look at that over there. And they get access to the secret. Wonderful. If you are in Christ, you are a son and daughter of God and indwelled by the Spirit. It's a changer. It's a mentality changer. And it's meant to be a mentality changer. See who you are. Soon as these disciples believed in Christ, they became disciples. And more than that, sons of the king, indwelled by God, made to do exactly what they're made to do. So we've got these two groups, and this is, right now our heart should be sort of like stirred up, like, yes, when you get people in proximity to the gospel, this is what happens. They hear it, it grabs them, it moves them, and now we get to the bad news. Uh, And we've got two more groups they're also going to get in close proximity to the gospel. I want us to pay special attention here, and this is why. It's not going to go very well. I want us to start really thinking and analyzing why does the gospel land sometimes and not others. Does that make sense? So let's look at this first group. You have not heard this portion of it. I intentionally put the good news um, on the scripture for you to read earlier, and I get to give you this tie that's a little tougher. All right? Verse 8, this is Acts 19, verse 8. Here's what it says. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months that he would be Paul. And for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, Reasoning daily in the halls of Tyrannus, they continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, both the Jews and the Greeks. So we hit our first stumbling block today. 
And this one seems like it should have been a layup. If you can walk up to a random person and a random group of 12 people who already think they're Christians and explain to them they're not a Christian, it seems like it would be way easier to go into a synagogue, a room full of men who would be expecting the Messiah eventually to come. And if you could present this to them well and do a good job, you'd expect them to say, yes, we believe. But what you see is there's a large group of people in this group They want nothing to do with the gospel. Now, let me talk with what it wasn't first, okay? It wasn't that Paul did a bad job. You probably saw a couple words in there. You heard that he argued persuasively, all right? So he took the time. He put together a good argument. Did anybody catch how long he was with them? Three months. This wasn't a one-off conversation where they didn't listen. He was like, psh. He spent three months talking debating, communicating, getting to know them. It's not in there, but I would almost guarantee you based off Paul's pattern, people came over and meals were involved in this. It probably just wasn't in the building. It was outside the building. So he built relationship and all of these things with them. And then despite all of that, not only do they reject it, but they become antagonistic. And not just antagonistic, but rude and scoffing. And Paul eventually has to take all of his people with him and say, we're going to go meet over here. It seems like Paul did everything right. About, oh man, it must have been six years ago. I had a student, we were in the middle of a class, it was a small class, I only had about eight kids in the room. I, for those who don't know, I work at a, um, a high school. And at a Christian high school, and we were having a conversation. I can't remember what it's about, and someone's like, yeah, that's real. She, this girl was like, yeah, that's real, like the moon landing's real. I was like, wait, what? She's like, moon landing's not real. I was like, are you serious? She's like, yeah, it's completely fake. And she starts going through her reasons why the moon landing was fake. And so because I'm an obsessive, compulsive person who always has to be right at all times, even if it's to a 17-year-old, I was like, oh, Oh, I've got something for you here. So I spent like five hours the next day researching all the answers to all of her questions, and I presented them to her the next day, of course in front of the entire class, because that's the best way to have a conversation. Um, And I presented all of it before her, and I said, the moon landing's not fake. And she goes, eh, still think it's fake. I was like, what? And I was so bothered. Like, I had done such a good job, and she just didn't care. So guess how many times I talked about the moon landing with her again? Zero. Because I was like, I'm not having a debate with you on the moon landing if you're not willing to listen to any level of logic. Some of us, that's our method of dealing with people who turn down the gospel. We, they say, I don't want that. And then we, what? And then we come back and we load up with all of our gospel stuff and we, and they go, no. Then we're like, what? And we back out. Look at Paul's method that he does here. I'm not saying it's a, a full track for everything, but look what he actually does here. He invests time, energy. He forms relationship. He thinks deeply through their questions. He speaks the truth to them in love, I would assume, based off his other writings. And then when they don't want to hear it after an extended period of time and whatever verbal abuse that came with it, eventually he walks away. But what I want you to see is he doesn't really walk away because later on he goes to write I would rather be cut off if my fellow Jews could be saved. So you know he's praying, and you know he's hoping for that spirit to work even after he's gone. 
I know there's some of you in the room who've tried to take the gospel to friends and family for years, and it's heartbreaking. And I know there's some of you that have probably at this point that's even scary to have a conversation ever again because you know what happens when you bring it up. God is in control. Keep praying. Keep trusting his spirit for those right moments and keep understanding when's the time to slowly back away. But don't let it slip. Keep being bold and use your wisdom. So we see this one here. He invested He formed relationship. He thought about their questions. None of this was done quickly. He was so invested in getting the gospel in close proximity to them that he's literally taking at least emotional abuse out of the process, and he lets it go on for three months. So we see this one group. They were not, they did not respond well. And now we come to my favorite. This is my favorite part of the story. I get to introduce you to the IJE. Has anyone ever heard of the IJE? I had not either until I started prepping for this passage, and then I found one of my favorite little names of anything I've ever found in Scripture. And that would be our last group who we're going to see, the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Yes, the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Would it be an excellent band name? Absolutely it would be. And if anyone takes it, I will sue. Uh, All right. I'm never going to be in a band. Um, All right, this is in Acts 19, verse 11, and we're going to see our last group. This group, the story gets a little more, let's just call it interesting for this sake. 19, verse 11 says this, And God was doing extraordinary, extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and disease left them, and the evil spirits were coming out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, I told you it's in there, I didn't just make it up, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, um, seven sons of Sceva, or sorry, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So we meet, just as a pause here for a moment, these seven guys, seven sons of Sceva, sons of the Jewish high priest. Now, just as a little bit of a backdrop here, they're not actually sons of a high priest. There actually wasn't, there was not a high priest named Sceva. We think from, I read probably five or six different spots on this, there's a lot of debate in the non-Christian world. They're like, aha, the Bible was wrong. We got you. It wasn't a Sceva who was a high priest. Yes, that's correct. There was not. But what there were, were a lot of men, especially in the spread out Jewish world, who had named themselves the high priest. We think this is some sort of Jewish, I'm going to use the term shaman, some sort of Jewish leader who has proclaimed himself to be the high priest. And these are his seven sons who are either actually have experience with the supernatural or either perhaps more likely, or I'm not going to use the term con men, but are people who are trying to tap into power. And we just don't know a lot. So everything I'm telling you about this is sort of like, eh, we think this might be who they are. It really doesn't matter who they are. What matters is actually what happens. They have a lot of background in Jewish knowledge, but not probably from the best source. And they have decided to walk into a demon-possessed man, and they say, hey, that Jesus stuff is working. Let's take that Jesus stuff, and we'll see if this works for us. And if you caught it in there, they're saying, talking to the, the evil spirit, say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they go to this man who's demon-possessed. And they want to cast the demon out. And they're like, let's use Jesus' name because that's working really well. And they say, 
you know, in Jesus' name, who Paul proclaims, like, come out. And then this amazing thing happens. And I shouldn't, and I'll tell you in a minute why I need to repent of enjoying this moment. But the most amazing thing happens. And if you have a Bible, look, it's verse uh, uh, 15. I love this. But the evil spirit answered them. (laughs) If you've ever wondered a moment in your life where it's appropriate enough to be so scared that it's hard to control bodily function, this is it. They're talking to this demon, and we don't know if they actually thought they had power or if they had just been sort of, you know, putting on that they had power. And the evil spirit talked back. And it only gets scarier. Listen to what it said to them. This is, ooh. All right. Jesus, I know. This is what the, the evil spirit talking. Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Guys, that's not good news. <laughs> if an evil spirit ever looks at you and says, whoa, 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 Jesus, yeah, got him, know who he is. Paul, heard of that guy. I don't know who you are. The right answer is to do one thing. What is it? It's run. It's 100% run. Ten times out of ten, the answer is to run. And apparently they did not or were not fast enough because it tells us, and the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them mastered all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This really turned really quick for them in a really bad way. One guy takes down seven, powered by this evil spirit, and they leave naked and wounded, and we're giving no, given no other details, and I think we should be thankful we're giving no other details out of this. And this is one of those things that happened, and everybody saw it. We're told in verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both the Jews and the Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Isn't that interesting? In all of this, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. God literally used people trying to hijack his name to do what he wanted to do. Now, here's what I don't think this was. I don't think this was some sort of divine judgment that these men received. I could be wrong. This this is, we're 100% in my opinion world right here. I think this is called consequence. And if you want to say, well, is judgment of God and consequence kind of the same thing? Yes, and we can have that discussion later. But I think they took on the power of evil armed with nothing, and they faced a natural consequence from it. They went into a situation with nothing to defend themselves, and they got crushed in it, and they faced a natural consequence of it. I, if I can encourage you today, look at God use consequence of people's mistakes in this scripture. We are so afraid of consequence. We're so afraid of the consequences of even our own actions, our family's actions, our kids' actions. And let me tell you, God is a master of using consequence. Not just to show us, hey, don't go there again, because I guarantee you they never tried to cast another demon out. I guarantee it's nowhere written in the Bible, but I can give you my, there's no way they were like, let's try that again. Uh, Like, it Consequence, yes, it teaches us that way, but God works in our consequences. About seven, eight years ago, I caught a student plagiarizing. And I was like, oh, no. Sometimes you call a parent, you know, they say, not little Johnny. I'm sure the Harvard person who wrote the article originally copied from him. Uh, But I called this parent, and they they threw me for a loop. I'm going to be honest. I say, hey, listen, wrote this paper, but he didn't really write the paper. And this is what they said to me. Thank you for letting us know. 
We love when our kids are caught in their sin. And it sort of threw me. And she went on to explain, she goes, it's just going to deeper show them their need for a savior. It's going to deeper show them their need that academics aren't everything they want. And she went through this like detailed picture of why she loved when her kids got caught in sin. And none of it was vengeful or like that they'll know that little thing will know. None of it was, it was all how the gospel is going to show out in their life and play out in their life. Listen, don't be afraid of your consequence. When you sin, own it, repent of it, glory in the gospel and his forgiveness of it, and let that consequence work you out as he shapes you more in the image of his son. And then, oh, I got to say this. I went back and forth on this one. It's about time we stopped enjoying when non-believers failed. Right? I love this story because here's these guys trying to pretend they're in Jesus and instead they take a beating. And there's this sick, dark part of me still down there that loves it when someone else fails. Because guess who I, I feel better about me. We love it when our favorite political leader on the other side gets involved in a scandal or loses an election or loses their final basketball game against North Carolina on their home court or whatever that may be. I just slid that in. There's this sick part of me, and I, I joke about that, but I, I was at my house the other night. I'm a big North Carolina fan. It's the only reason Bill ever asked me to preach. And I'm sitting there watching the game, and if you don't know who Coach K is, he's the best college basketball coach of all time. And when he lost his last game on that court to us, Oh, the feeling was so 100%, the, the word is, I guess, sweet. Uh, like, oh, yes, we ruined this for you. And I'm sitting there, like, celebrating to the point my wife comes downstairs. She's like, are you okay? Uh, and I'm celebrating this moment, and I, this thing, like, slapped me. And I was like, so what you're celebrating now is a failure in someone else's life that they feel bad. Cool, that seems really biblical. That is right in there. But I want you to understand why we do this. We do this because we want to feel justified, whether it's as silly as a basketball game or whether it sees someone who criticizes a Christian church go down or a political leader you don't like look foolish. You see, you're making it literally about you. So my encouragement for you is really simple, and it's this today. When was the last time you saw your sin, addressed your sin, and walked away from your sin? Okay, let me give you one last example of this because we kind of have a little fifth group in here. This is one that happens. So everyone sees and hears the name of Jesus is extolled. And this is what happens next. Listen to this. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, listen to this phrase, confessing and divulging their practices. The fear hits them and they go, oh, I got to come clean. And instead of hiding, instead of saying, I don't want consequence for my sin, they came wide open and they said, here's what I've done. Here's who I am. And it says, a number of those who practiced the magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found them at 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail. This group of people, when they saw consequence of sin, Instead of hiding their sin, they confessed it. And what I see here is really simple. Here's what they did. They, just, they didn't justify their sin. They didn't compare their sin. They didn't excuse their sin, and they didn't forget their sin. So I ask you again, think about Think hard on this one for a second. When's the last time you saw your sin, 
addressed your sin and actually walked away from one. We don't do that. We instead justify it and say, well, if you knew this, we compare it. We go, well, I'm not as bad as him. We excuse it. Well, I did it, but, and then eventually we forget it. We go, oh, I did that? When is the last time you actually stopped and said, man, I really do mess up. I encourage you in this room. Some of us have lived in such gospel proximity for so long, we've actually forgotten how much we need a Savior, and we've become so self-righteous, and by we, I mean we. And we turn the failures of non-believers into our own righteousness, and your own righteousness is only based on one man who got it right every time. And it has nothing to do with you. So what's the difference? Here's our big question. I have like three minutes to answer the big question. What's the difference? Why did two come and two not come? What happened? I'm going to give you five, my five theories on why, okay? Reason number one is this. The first two had a exposure to a good source of truth. They knew the work of John. They knew the scriptures. They must have most likely had been to Jerusalem. They most likely knew the scriptures well before they were raised. And they had a good source of truth. Okay? We need to be that good source of truth. We need to come to conferences like we're coming to, so that when we have conversations, you can answer questions accurately and clearly and with confidence. They had a good source of truth. Number two, they show some signs of humility. You notice that by the time the gospel gets to them, they've actually already realized that they're a sinner and they need help. There's a brokenness in them that's that they've enough to the point where they've been baptized into a baptism of repentance because they've recognized something's wrong with me. The next two groups, there's nothing in the scripture that they've come to a point, and it doesn't mean they won't, but they haven't come to a point where they go like, man, something's broken. I need help. Third, there's signs of faith. The first two were actually looking for the Messiah. In some sense, in the Old Testament sense, for sure, they had faith 100%. They just did not know Jesus yet. They were looking for the coming of the Messiah. Um, probably when Adeline was one, um, y'all may not remember this. We were living in Charleston at the time. We got 26.88 inches of rain in five days. And if you know anything about Charleston, it floods really bad. And I think it hit down here pretty hard as well because Allison had come down here to see some friends, and she got stuck here for several days because 95 was washed out, and I'm at home with a backyard that's the water was slowly creeping in, and I've got a one-year-old who I was basically trashed to compared to her mom, and all she wants is her mom to come back in that door, and I think I looked at the door every day, all day, just waiting for her to walk back in. That was their mindset towards the Messiah. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. Signs of faith. Four, and this one, this is one I'm least sure of. You seem to have different intentions. The two, groups, the two groups that did not want the gospel obviously wanted power, possibly position, and maybe financial gain out of the kingdom of God. It didn't really seem, at least in the passage, that the kingdom of God might not be their priority. So I say that one with like, at some level, there's some intention there. Now, we can't control that. We can't know that. And now I say for the one that really matters, and it's the fifth one. And this one is really the one that controls all the other ones. And it's a really simple answer. Why did some come and some didn't come? It's the will of the Almighty God. Why? The will of the Almighty God. Paul was super convincing. Didn't matter. 
These people, these guys tried to use Jesus' name, didn't matter. God had not called them. I can prove it to you by using Acts 18, 20 through 21. If you go back and you look at that in your Bibles, you write down if you want to write it down. Um, they're asking Paul to stay in Corinth, and they want Paul to stay a little bit longer. And Paul says, no, I, I've got to go, but this is what he says in verse 21. I will return to you if God wills. I will return to you if God wills. If God is controlling where Paul spends his time, he is certainly controlling much bigger things than that. Folks, it is our job to conclusively bring the gospel to people with as much clarity as humanly possible, but you cannot win them. That is a job of the Almighty God. That is a job of the Spirit. We prep we understand. We invest relationally. We do all of these things, but that is the job of Almighty God. If you smelled me earlier today, I told you we built a fire, um, and I wore this sweater on purpose while I did the fire last night. And if you come up later and sniff me, it'll be awkward. But if you choose to do so, I smell like fire. Because I was in close proximity to that thing for about two hours. And everywhere I go today, I'm going to smell like that fire. If you're in this room and you're a believer, here's your job, two-part two job. One, every step you them by your interactions, will they, something, because someone stood by my, out, my wife this morning was like, please don't wear this sweater. Uh, I was like, I'm doing it anyway. We're going to do it. Trust me. Uh, because she smelled it on the stair rail before I picked it up this morning. She's like, oh, don't wear the sweater. But I can't help it. Everywhere I'm going to go, people are going to know I've been near that fire. And then here's the next step, and here's the bold step. There's people out there, they're alone and cold, and they need proximity to the gospel. Take them to the fire. Bring them to the truth. And if you're in this room and you have never, ever placed your faith in Jesus, let me just be real simple for you today. We have something called the gospel, and it will change your life. It will radically turn it upside down. Today, You've heard four different people be, get exposed to it, and I'm going to give it to you very simply right now. You are a sinner, and you are flawed. But God loved you so much that he sent his own son, and he lived the perfect life, and he died in your place so that when you place your faith in him, he'll forgive everything you've ever done, everything that you ever will do, and you offer nothing to him except your faith, and he offers his kingdom back to you. Don't wait another day. Don't get exposed again to this truth and walk away and say, maybe next time. Because it's too wonderful to walk away from again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for how good it is. Thank you for how it changes our life. Father, I pray we would walk out of this room, and I say this word, Lord, and I hope it's the right word to say, reeking of the gospel where people can't help but spell, smell it on us, and for some it would drive away and let that smell bring some in. Father, you are a good God. I pray for those in the room who've never, ever come to faith in you that today would be that day. You're in our prayer. Amen.